Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com artcurious for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Listen up! In the winter of 1945 into 1946, a World War II infantryman for the United States would be supplied with gear that was meant to be carried and trekked from location to location, regardless of weather, ailment, or occurrence. This ensemble would include everything from a thin wool blanket and long underwear, heavy durable boots, and a stainless steel canteen, to meal rations, gas masks, and radio transmitters. All of this gear alone could easily weigh a good 50 to 60 pounds. And that's all before there were any weapons on hand. Add on a pistol or a rifle, bullets, and any appropriate add-ons needed to maintain, clean, and restock a weapon, and you are talking a significant load to haul around. To a handful of these men, it wasn't their guns, their helmets, or their first aid kits that were the most significant pieces of equipment that they transported to the battlefield. No, there was a more specialized tool of utter importance. As one soldier, Edmund Reap noted, quote, I fought the war more furiously, perhaps, with my paintbrush than with my weapons. Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless. But the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs are weirder, crazier, or more fun than you can imagine. And today we're discussing a group of dedicated and talented artists who threw themselves in the middle of war in order to capture the experience and create art about it. Welcome to the Art Curious Podcast. Exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. I'm Jennifer Dassel. In this second season of the Art Curious Podcast, I'll be guiding you through a number of episodes in which World War II and the art world intersect. Our last episode, number 22, the second in the season, we looked at one of the most well-known failed artists in modern history, and certainly the single person who played the largest role in World War II, Adolf Hitler. Today, though, we will be looking at a group of individuals who were successful working artists, sacrificing life and limb by entering the war zone, specifically for the purpose of documenting it. This is the story of the combat artists of World War II. At the beginning of 1943, the U.S. Assistant Secretary of War, John J. McCloy, took time out of his busy schedule to sit down, at his request, with a muralist. By this point, the United States had been embroiled in World War II for just over a year, ever since the bombing of Pearl Harbor in December 1941 catapulted the nation into action. From most accounts, it looks like the Assistant Secretary of War had a lot of worries on his hands, but one was of personal significance to him. He had recently learned that the U.S. Navy had been doing particularly well for the past year in visually recording their accomplishments for glory and for posterity. Having developed the Navy Combat Art Program in 1941, prior to Pearl Harbor even, and based off of similar positive experiences in World War I, the Navy had been sending painters into the field to document the goings-on. This was all well and good, but John McCloy, he was an army man, 
and gosh darn it, if the Navy is doing something considerably well, then the Army better catch up and do it better if he could help it. So that is how George Biddle found himself being asked to serve as the chairman for the War Department Art Advisory Committee. Biddle was a muralist and a lithographer by trade, but he was also a person with important contacts. He counted Franklin Roosevelt among his closest childhood friends. And his brother, Francis Biddle, was an attorney general who helped his brother get a coveted commission to paint murals inside the Department of Justice building and other federal buildings under the scope of the New Deal. And luckily for John McCloy, he was also an army man and was super enthusiastic about the prospects of developing a trained corps of talented artists to work alongside trained officers in the war. Biddle accepted the chairmanship and got to work assembling a panel of advisors who would recommend the best of the best in the art world. George Biddle assembled a wide range of prominent individuals to come together and select the artists who would eventually form the Army Art Unit. Some of the advisors were artists themselves, like Henry Varnum Poor, who, like Biddle, was a well-connected muralist who had originally studied under the British artist Walter Sickert, who, coincidentally, was the subject of our podcast's sixth and seventh episodes. He also requested the aid of curators, museum directors, and gallery owners. Interestingly enough, the writer John Steinbeck was also part of the committee, who once wrote to Biddle, quote, it seems to me that a total war would require the use not only of all of the material resources of the nation, but also the spiritual and psychological participation of the whole people. And the only psychic communication we have is through the arts." Unquote. At the end of a fairly short deliberation process, the advisory committee ultimately narrowed down their selections to 41 so-called artist correspondents. All male, of course, and with the delegation split between civilian artists and those already in active duty. These men would be responsible for documenting and producing art, fine art, high art, of excellent quality, and do so in 12 theaters of war across the globe. Supported by the hindsight of almost 80 years, it is easy for me to think of this concept of the war and combat artist as totally insane. These men would have to schlep their gear in the middle of raging battles replete with artillery fire, awful weather conditions, dire illness, and lacking any sort of meditative or creative space. And they were expected to ship works back in somewhat reasonable shape, order, and frequency. There was a precedent for this kind of job. Besides World War I, when the establishment of official war artists really became the norm— there were examples of war art documentation in America reaching all the way back to the Revolutionary War, with artists such as Winslow Homer, John Trumbull, William Glackens, and John Singer Sargent producing war-related works in the span of the country's first 150 years. But the intensity and scope of the Second World War was unlike anything ever experienced, and documenting it was a whole new ballgame. George Biddle's main intention in establishing the art unit was to portray what it was really, really like on the war front. In part, Biddle was responding to the traditional types of art and design that proliferated during times of war. In particular, the highly emotional, fear-based, or extra-saccharine propaganda posters filling newspapers, magazines, and city streets. This will be discussed more fully in a future episode this season, but suffice to say that there was no lack of images meant to provoke everyday people into supporting the war effort with war bonds, for example. Either that, 
or the images of the soldiers in battle fell into the time-honored tradition of hero worship, which stretched back in art all the way to ancient times, as we discussed in the first episode of the season. Biddle knew better. He was in the army during the First World War, and he knew very well that war wasn't what it appeared to be from the outside. With that, he provided marching orders to the artists in his command, allowing them their artistic freedom, but also demanding that they present a full picture of their experiences. As he wrote to them in March 1943, quote, any subject is in order if, as artists, you feel it is a part of the war. Battle scenes and the frontline battle landscapes, the dying and the dead, prisoners of war, field hospitals and base hospitals, wrecked habitations and bombing scenes, character sketches of our own troops, of prisoners, of the natives of the countries you visit, the tactical implements of war, embarkation and debarkation scenes, the nobility, cowardice, courage, cruelty, boredom of war. All of this should form part of a well-rounded picture. Try to omit nothing. Duplicate to your heart's content. Express, if you can, realistically or symbolically, the essence and spirit of war. You may be guided by Blake's mysticism, of Goya's cynicism and savagery, by Delacroix's romanticism, by Daumier's humanity or tenderness, or better still, follow your own inevitable star. We believe that our Army Command is giving you an opportunity to bring back record of great value to our country. Our committee wants to assist you to that end." That end actually began only months later, with the first artists landing in parts of the South Pacific and North Africa by May of 1943. And believe it or not, George Biddle so believed in his own mission that he enlisted as a combat artist himself, heading to Tunisia and essentially upping the core number to 42 artist correspondents. Regardless, resistance to the Army Art Unit stateside was surprisingly substantial, especially in two aspects. The first, naturally, was monetarily. Only months after the Army's art unit was established, and while many of his art correspondents were already out in the literal line of fire, the House of Representatives moved to cut the program from the Army's already massive budget for the fiscal year of 1943 and 1944. As reported by the book They Drew Fire, Combat Artists in World War II, one devastated artist quipped, quote, one of us might conceivably have his head shot off. And at the same time, Congress is giving us this kick in the pants. Thankfully, though, Congress changed their minds the following year and reinstated the program. Concurrently, there was an initial backlash against the idea of combat artists specifically being requested to produce quality, finished paintings as the endgame for these military projects. Why bother to do so when a photograph could capture the scene just as well, and with an immediacy that a painting just couldn't provide? To its supporters, though, combat artists in each wing of the military could provide a sense of humanity that would otherwise be lacking in a quickfire photo. As Representative A. Willis Robertson of Virginia said to this effect, quote, We can take photographs of what happens in Europe but it takes the vision and artistic skill of the artist to bring us the inspiration which only an artist can put down on canvas. Brigadier General Robert L. Denig, the Director of Public Relations for the United States Marine Corps, concurred with Robertson's assessment, but he took it one step further, writing, quote, the combat photographer must snap his photo of an action as it happens. If he is busy taking part in the action, as he so often is, 
and if it happens so fast, he is unable to adjust his camera in time, and if the conditions are no good, the action is never recorded, and the picture is never made. The artist, on the other hand, with his photographic eye, can take part in the action and then paint any moment of it from memory at his leisure. The painter can provide his own lighting. He can give a picture any degree of intensity he desires. He can reconstruct a scene from whatever angle he considers most dramatic, centering attention wherever he wishes." Unquote. We've all seen the headlines in the news of how someone lost their life in an act of cold-blooded murder. And while it's sad and grabs your attention, most people go on with their day without giving it another thought. But have you ever stopped to think about the life of the person at the center of the news story? They were more than just a headline or a statistic. They were someone's loved one or friend. I'm Mike Morford, and my podcast, The Murder of My Family, dives into some of those stories to help listeners get to know the person who was lost and how their death affected those closest to them. Listen to The Murder of My Family everywhere you listen to podcasts. There are well over 100 episodes to binge on now. And this part was very true. For the vast majority of combat artists, their work was done after the fact. And though specific people, locations, and events could be reflected or recalled, the majority of their paintings were amalgams of these elements, combined and remixed in retrospect in order to provide the most effective response from the viewer back home. Sadness, horror, pride, sympathy. Horror, though, that was the most prominent. That's coming up next right after this break. Hi, Art Curious folks. I want to share a special offer for you today. For listeners of this show, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their awesome service. Two books that are currently fascinating me are Provenance, How a Con Man and a Forger Rewrote the History of Modern Art by Lainey Salisbury and Ali Sujo, and The Ugly Renaissance, Sex, Greed, Violence, and Depravity in an Age of Beauty by Alexander Lee. You can find these, as well as the biggest bestsellers like The Girl on the Train by Paula Hawkins or Big Little Lies by Leanne Moriarty, and thousands more. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com artcurious for your free audiobook. Welcome back to Art Curious. The combat artists of World War II created thousands of artworks, paintings mostly, from each of the branches of the U.S. military. The Army alone received more than 2,000 paintings from their artist correspondents all around the world and quickly put together a traveling exhibition titled Army at War, featuring over 200 paintings meant to bridge the gap between soldiers and civilians in the knowledge and experiences of the realities of war. As George Biddle strongly hoped, and as author Christopher Hansen writes in a 2008 article from the Archives of American Art Journal, quote, the Army at War exhibition would correct the naive home front impression, fostered by Hollywood, that combat was an exciting adventure rather than a living nightmare, unquote. Strangely enough, this goal was not communicated clearly to those tasked with marketing the exhibition, who used tactics from the movie industry to promote the exhibition, replete with phrases like thrill-packed spectacular scenes and immortal heroism, all with capital letters and lots of exclamation points, to play up to potential exhibition-goers throughout the country. Though the Army at War exhibition was popular and well-attended as it traversed the nation, there was another and far more effective method of presenting these works of art to a captive audience. The ever-popular Life magazine began offering, quote, artist correspondents their own contracts for reproducing artwork produced in battle which meant that, suddenly, there were images everywhere, 
exposed to the everyday U.S. citizen at an astounding rate. And the immediate reactions were not good. First and foremost, readers were shocked because war was right there in their faces and in full color. Most people had experienced the war only through photographs and newsreels, and the black and white nature of these media allowed for a certain amount of detachment. But not so with painting, wherein an artist could add as much blood red as he deemed fit. One artist, Tom Lee, created some of the most iconic and memorable of these paintings. And to this day, there is one work of art that is deemed the most controversial, The Price a painting from 1944, created in the aftermath of the Battle of Peleliu, it in itself one of the most controversial U.S. battles of the war. Tom Lee fought as an artist for the Marines in this epic battle with the Japanese, and the price, as Lee later told Life magazine, was based on his actual experiences of Peleliu. Of the battle, he wrote, quote, I got up, I ran a few steps, and fell into a small hole as another mortar burst threw dirt on me. Lying there in terror, looking longingly up the slope for better cover, I saw a wounded man near me, staggering in the direction of the LVTs. His face was half-bloody pulp, and the mangled shreds of what was once his left arm hung down like a stick as he bent over in his stumbling, shock-crazy walk. The half of his face that was still human had the most terrifying look of abject pain I have ever seen. He fell behind me in a red puddle on the white sand." The vivid painted version, created after Lee's return to the States, proved to be too much for many life readers. The magazine received hundreds of complaints, with one simply reading, quote, God, how could you? Why such a picture? And another snarkily jeered, quote, Congratulations, we can't have too much stark reality. Because this is, in effect, one of the starkest of all the combat paintings of World War II. Lee faithfully illustrates his memory so that viewers have no choice but to stare at the face, literally, of gore. The soldier is transformed into a half-person whose left side from the head down through the torso to his dangling hand is pure shredded flesh, dripping with blood. Even for 20th century viewers who might be accustomed to violence on TV and in movies, this painting is hard to handle. And even I had some internal debates with myself about whether or not to post it to the Art Curious website. I did. So be forewarned. But as Lee maintained, there was no need to enhance the terror or drama of the scene. As he remembered in 1982, quote, I want to make it clear that I did not report hearsay. I did not imagine or fake or improvise. I did not cuddle up with personal emotion, moral notion, or political opinion about war with a capital W. I reported in pictures what I saw with my own two eyes, wide open. A far less gory but equally powerful work of art that Tom Lee completed after his time at Peleliu is the 2,000-yard stare, which may have had the original title of Marines Call It That 2,000-Yard Stare. Life magazine produced this image, along with an article about Lee's experiences, in 1945. And ever since that moment, the phrase thousand-yard stare has entered both military and popular vernacular. It has found its way into iconic films such as Full Metal Jacket. The where and when the 2,000-yard transformed into just a 1,000-yard is beyond me. 
Lee's painting shows a helmeted man whose face takes up a full two-thirds of the canvas. And though there is a lot of action going on behind him, like smoke billowing towards the sky, tanks and soldiers at the ready, and planes soaring overhead, it's the man and his deadened, horrified expression that grips us as viewers. His eyes bulge out in shock and are red-rimmed. His mouth gapes open slightly. His gaze looks almost at us, but it is actually focused far beyond us, out into nothingness. Tom Lee noted that he based the 2,000-yard stare on an actual person. In his book, also titled The 2,000-Yard Stare, he wrote, quote, I noticed a tattered Marine staring stiffly at nothing. His mind was crumbled in battle. His eyes were like two empty black holes in his head. Last evening, he came down out of the hills. Told to get some sleep, he found a shell crater and slumped into it. First light has given his gray, gray face an eerie color. He left the States 31 months ago. He was wounded in the first campaign, and two-thirds of his company has been killed or wounded. How can one human endure so much? Unquote. Interestingly, some have countered Lee's own recollection of this anonymous soldier and have theorized that the 2,000-yard stare might actually be Lee's self-portrait. Larry DeCures, an exhibition curator at the National World War II Museum in New Orleans, said, quote, if you look at a picture of Tom Lee at the time, it almost looks like him, unquote. Whether or not it is a self-portrait doesn't matter, essentially. This detached, impaired person, and this painting, is PTSD writ large, a visual symbol for the destruction and devastation of World War II. For something so invested in and extolled as a concept, the thousands of works of arts made by the combat artists of World War II slipped away and into relative obscurity after the end of the war in 1945. Even though they had entered the consciousness of millions of Americans via traveling exhibitions and especially via Life magazine, once VJ Day rolled around, Americans were tired. They no longer wanted to see, nor did they have a use for, these wartime images of death and terror. Tragedy had touched their lives enough, and they were ready to move on and to bask in the victorious outcomes of the Allies. These combat paintings were shuffled away into military archives and scant private and public collections around the country, with most of them off view for decades. Thankfully, today there are fantastic books and documentaries out there that profile the incredible work of these one-of-a-kind artist correspondents. And you can still see some of these original artworks today at the U.S. Army Center for Military History, the Navy Art Gallery, and the Marine Corps Museum, all three in Washington, D.C., which means that making a special trip to see combat art is made much easier by virtue of geography. But much more work needs to be done, and should be done, to bring more of these artworks to light. Because when people think of visual art pertaining to World War II, they are far more likely to think about icons like Rosie the Riveter or Uncle Sam over any image created by the Army Art Unit. And that's coming up next time on the Art Curious Podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Art Curious Podcast. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel. Our new theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com. Research assistance is by Stephanie Pryor, and social media help is by Emily Crockett. Our production and editorial services are provided by Kabuki Creative. Video, content, ideas. 
Learn more at kabonki.com. The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored primarily by Anchor Light. Anchor Light is an interdisciplinary creative space founded to foster artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. Home to studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition spaces, Anchor Light encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the triangle. Please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. The Art Curious Podcast is also sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator. This means that you, yes, you, can donate to the show and it is totally tax deductible. Please see our website for further details. And you can also go there for images, information, and links to all of our previous episodes. That site is artcuriouspodcast.com. And of course, you can contact us via that website or email us at artcuriouspodcast at gmail.com. And find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at ArtCuriousPod. Remember to subscribe and review us on iTunes. It really helps people to find us. Check back in two weeks as we continue to explore the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history of the World War II era.